Good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. As Adam mentioned, we have plenty of our folks that are coming back and traveling this weekend, and we're certainly prayerful for their safe return. <clears throat> for those of you that were visiting with us, we're certainly thankful uh, for your presence here today, and I pray the things that I present to you, that they will be beneficial, they'll be edifying, and they'll be uplifting in some way and help you in your faith. We continue studying in the book of Romans today, and we're going to conclude Romans, although we're going to, Romans is 16 chapters, we're going to go through about midway of chapter 15 as he closes out the book of Romans. It's more some, some personal things that he begins talking about, not to say that that's not important, but um, to be completely honest, I've been, this is, you know, going on 16 months, <laughs> and I, I, it's time for some closure. So, as we look in Romans, and we look at our, our five S's in Romans, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service, you'll notice here in these bottom columns all of this about righteousness and God's righteousness, and that's the driving thrust of what Romans is about. It's about God's righteousness in every way that you can think about. And he opens up there in the book of, or in Romans chapter 1, pointing this out, that everything points to Christ, that the gospel was the power of God and the salvation to the Jew and to also to the Greek. In chapter 2, he talks about sin and that we didn't need to be, Jews and Gentiles both did not need to be presumptuous based upon God's patience and forbearance that we are all judged equally Jew and Gentile alike. In chapter 3, he kind of turns to specifically the Jews in Israel about the Old Testament law and showing how that Old Testament law was all uh, a part of God's plan to even graft in the Gentiles and is a part of God's purpose. And he illustrates this multiple ways. He shows specifically in the law how it, show, how it pointed to Christ. He shows in the prophets how it pointed to Christ. He shows how David pointed to Christ. And as he opens in chapter 4, he then ushers in Abraham, who was the father of their faith. And he talks about all of this great faith that Abraham has, and it's a great admonition for us to follow after. But he says in there that it was Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him righteousness. And we need to understand from that statement alone through about the next five chapters, all of that boils down to that faith that Abraham, and it wasn't just a mere acknowledgement that God existed. It was a faith that God was going to deliver on his promises. And these promises are what Paul is talking about right now. The very faith the belief that Abraham had had come to light right before their eyes. And that's what their faith needed to be couched in. As chapter 4 closes, he ushers in Christ and turns back to Christ. And he's talking about what Christ did. And there's this contrast in chapter 5 with Adam and Christ, how that through Adam, sin into the world and death because of sin, and therefore death passed on to all men, not in the sense that we inherit Adam's guilt, but in the sense that we have the same nature as Adam. We have free will. We're going to choose. We're going to sin, and therefore we're death because of that. But then there's this beautiful contrast of Christ that he brings in, that Christ was the first fruits of grace. And as he goes through, closes out chapter 5, there is this repeated statement of about four times there at the end where it talks about gift, grace, gift, grace, gift, grace. Open chapter 6, the first question is he asks, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer was no. And he immediately references their baptism in that answer with this subject of gift and grace. And he says, you know, Christ was raised to a newness of life. And we are, when you were baptized, you were raised to a newness of life. 
putting away the old flesh. Why would you want to go back to that? At the end of chapter 6, he makes the statement there that we are slaves of sin or we're slaves or slaves to obedience and righteousness. There's no other categories there. In chapter 7, he capitalizes all of this by illustrating through the Old Testament law a marriage example and how that we're free from the law because of Christ. And also in chapter 7, we get that inward look of Paul where Paul has the same struggles that you and I have today where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. The things that I know that I shouldn't do, I do those things. And we get to see this openness of Paul and the very things that we struggle with as well. In chapter 8, he makes that statement. uh, Now those that are in Christ, there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And the understanding is he closes out this Old Testament law about how we're set free from it because we have Christ. And we're not to live to the flesh, but we're to live in Christ. In chapter 9, he punctuates all of this with God's sovereignty. And the unique way in which he places this argument of sovereignty in here. And he makes the statement there, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated out of the book of Malachi, that normally the birthright would go through the older Esau and not the younger, which was Jacob, but everything went through Jacob. All these promises that were made to Abraham, they came through Jacob and not Esau. And the reality is, is who are we to question God's plan? Who are the Jews to question God's plan? He's God. He's the supreme authority. We're on the ball. We're on His ball that He put in place. And he asked the question, how does that which is molded look at the molder and go, why did you make me this way? Because it's His plan. That's what He wanted to do. In chapter 10, the Jew he talks about the Jews having tried to establish their own righteousness and he had grafted in, began this grafting process of the Gentiles, and the Jews were the ones who had disobeyed, not the Gentiles. In chapter 11, he talks about this root, and that root was Christ. And from that root was this beautiful tree that had both Jews and grafted in Gentiles alike. <clears throat> At the end of chapter 11, he makes this beautiful statement there that all things are by him, through him, and for him. And chapter 12 is that pivotal word, therefore. For this reason, we are to transform and not conform. And he talks about all the relationships that we have in this life, the relationships that you and I have with one another, the outside those, the church, even our enemies. And at the center of all of those relationships, at the center of all that discussion was love. And the focus of all of that was love. And even as he goes into chapter 13 and he talks about the importance of submitting to government and what government was there for and the purpose in God putting government and allowing governments to take place, that you pay honor and you pay taxes and you do all this. At the center of all of that, it was still about love. And verse 8 he says, Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So at the end of the day, the debt that we pay is love and we still have love to pay the next day. As we open in chapter 14 this morning, we're going to be looking at our fellowship. And he's continuing with this idea. Remember the context? He's been talking about love, and this is these last few chapters are very personal application type chapters. And he's been talking about love. 
And he's going to talk about fellowship, and he's going to talk about unity. And he does it in a way that is very unique. He drives home the illustration of unity and fellowship by bringing up a problem that they had there in Rome. So we begin reading. He says, Him that is weak in the faith receive you, not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another man another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regarded it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth, th- giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. And that's a lot of, that's a very wordy way of Paul putting this to just pretty much say you have two houses here, maybe four. Some that think that you should just eat vegetables, some that want to eat meat, some that think you should observe specific days, some think all days are alike. Don't judge based upon those things. And to sort out the difference between faith and opinion, as it relates specifically to this passage, we have to kind of first define the terms that we're looking at. Whenever we talk about, when he talks about by faith, we're meaning, as he said in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. For example, partaking in the Lord's Supper. That's a matter of our faith. That's something that is actually legislated by God. It's an article of our faith. It's something that you see repeatedly in the Scriptures that we are to do. Right? An example of maybe opinion. Maybe you think that the preacher should always wear a coat and tie whenever he preaches. If you do, I'm in luck because I'm doing that today. That's a matter of pure opinion. We have no legislation in the Scriptures as far as that's concerned. That's just opinion. You know, God did this from the beginning of time whenever you look all the way back with Adam and Eve. He gave them one thing in which He legislated. Technically two. He told them to keep and tend to the garden, but not to eat of the true tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was an article of faith which He legislated they could not do. Now, everything else was a matter of opinion. If they wanted to eat from one tree on Monday and another tree on Tuesday and another tree on Wednesday and then go back to the first tree on Thursday, that was completely up to their discretion. They could do whatever they wanted. It really is surprising whenever you think about the amount of liberties that we have in the Scriptures in which God has given us liberty to make decisions on what we want to do. What's critical in understanding in this chapter, though, is as far as the context applies, it's a matters of opinion and indifference. Opinion and indifference to God, not us. And I think that's where this chapter sometimes historically throughout the church has gotten a little bit twisted. Is we think the matters of indifference are about us when the matters of indifference are actually what God says He's indifferent to. Not us. And so keep that in mind as we look at this because 
Obviously, the individual that had a problem with eating meats, that was something that could become very doctrinal to them. They were very convinced in that. But it was a matter of opinion. So observe then that the one who is weak in faith in this chapter refers to the Christian whose knowledge and therefore faith has been insufficient in sorting out particular issues is what that boils down to. And they're matters of opinion, not matters of whether or not they should be taking the Lord's Supper. He goes on to say, Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful dispensations. And we need to understand that where the brother is weak is in the fact that the issue under consideration is not a matter of opinion, but it's a matter of faith. The specific issues that Paul is talking about have to do with food and have to do with specific days in which they were observing. And you could look at any number of things in which coming out of the Old Testament law, remember the context in which we're in, talking about all this stuff about the Old Testament law. There were specific days in which the Jews were commanded to observe that had not been bound on them in the, in, under Christ's dispensation. So what is God's view on the matter? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 4 and verse 4 says, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be, received, excuse me, be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Later on in chapter 14, he says, I know that and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So God's view on the matter really is, you can eat what you want as long as you take it in with thanksgiving. It's reminiscent of Peter when Peter in the book of Acts, when God gave Peter a vision and all of these animals that he showed him, and he said, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter was like, I can't eat that stuff. You've told me not to. Well, this was a difference in time. This was the old, they weren't under the Old Testament law. And the Jews had not been really free in that regard. They hadn't been free in what they could eat. They hadn't been, there were a lot of things that they couldn't eat. So, with the coming of Christianity, no such dietary regulations were in place. So we see a contrast in this in the book of Galatians. Galatians and Romans are very much alike. The difference is this. Romans, Paul's dealing with these, those and the Jews that were trying to bring in the Old Testament laws, and it hadn't, doesn't seem to have quite gotten to the point that it had at the church in Galatia. In Galatia, it looks like they had fully bought into it because of the terminology that Paul uses, and he's very hard on them in some instances. One person esteems one day above another. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. So these are observing days which are right. Those are religiously neutral days, as he defines it in Romans. But if you go over to Galatians in chapter 4, he says, you have observed days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. So obviously they had brought in this Old Testament law in these days that they were observing. And Paul says, what was all the work that I did? I worked, did all of this work to free you from this, and here you are observing these days. Why? It's worthless. It's meaningless. All the work I did was meaningless. And observing those days is wrong, that those were not unscriptural, or excuse me, that those were unscriptural religious days. 
So he deals with this in multiple places in the Scriptures. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he looks at this also. And I want us to continue reading in verse 18. He says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. At the end of the day, we. Who do we belong to? Collectively, as a unit, as a group, whose kingdom are we in? Who are we to be united in? We. I want you to remember that throughout the entirety of all of this. His objective and what he's trying to accomplish. For to this end, remember the we. Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. But why hast thou... Dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set not at not thy brother? For we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, I say, I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So I want us to really understand whenever he talks about we, and then what does he immediately do? He points to Christ. He immediately has this subject of fellowship, the struggle that's going on, and then he immediately points it to Christ. And he says, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. At the end of all of this, each one of us have to give an account. Why waste it judging your brother? Why waste it judging your brother or sister on things such as that are just matters of opinion? Why waste it judging on whether I'm not wearing a suit and tie to preach? That seems like an awful waste of energy considering what Christ did. He talks about a stumbling block, and that word stumbling block it's used four times in the book of Romans. It's been it's used a ton of times throughout the New Testament. It's the same word that, is, that Christ used when he tells Peter to get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. Hindrance and stumbling block are the same word. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. Paul is saying that if you're going to judge, your judgment shouldn't be worrying about whether or not you're brother or sisters doing something which in a matter of opinion or indifference is really irrelevant. But what you should be judging, what you should be concerned with, is you. What you should be concerned with is your conduct. What you should be concerned with is whether or not you are being a hindrance and a stumbling block before your brother or sister in Christ. So the question isn't simply, am I okay to do this? Because that's what happens in religion a lot, isn't it? Isn't that what happens? Am I okay to do this? Or I try to find a way to do something that I want to do? And the focus is who? Me. It's not for the we. And there becomes the problem. The question is also, is something that I do could cause my brother or my sister to stumble? 
there is the matter in which we should be judging in and not whether or not my brother or sister is doing something that I don't like. Rather than instructing the strong to teach the weak the truth so that they're no longer weak, Paul doesn't do that. Do you notice that? What's our first reaction so many times in situations like that? It's simply to get people to think the same way we think. If Jason thinks I should wear a coat and tie every time I preach, and he comes up to me, one day I choose not to wear it, hey, I noticed you didn't wear a coat and tie. Well, I didn't wear a coat and tie. Big deal. But, you know, we need to look our best when we're preaching. Have you seen this face? Coat and tie ain't going to fix that. And then he goes to Seth whenever he preaches and does it. And then he goes to Colton. And then, now all of a sudden, we've got something that's a matter of opinion focused on the me that is a problem for the we. And it shouldn't be that way. Paul calls them to understand where the weak is coming from. He doesn't say you need to pull them aside and bring them to your way of thinking. You need to understand where they're coming from. I know and am persuaded the Lord by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's a rather simple, straightforward statement. If someone thought a meat or a food was unclean and they not need to be eating it, They didn't need to pull them aside and say, this is why it's not unclean. You should try putting A1 on it. It'll make it better. That's not what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to understand that in their state, to them it was unclean. And later on, he illustrates that by doing and eating and doing something that which they thought to be unclean was hazardous to their faith. The strong need to understand that the conscious is involved. It is not simple for someone to change regarding something that they've always done, or in this case, foods that they weren't supposed to eat. Verse 15 capitalizes on this thought. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. That is a great statement. For these matters of opinion, these matters that really don't matter, to be completely honest, why are you going to destroy your brother? Why would you go to the ends to offend them, to put a stumbling block in front of them? And we need to understand that those things which we may see as small matters can be huge matters to somebody else. A couple weekends ago, I got to go fishing with David and Jordan, my wife and I did. And that's David standing there with about a, he's probably about a two, two and a half pound bass. Not very big. And I've got this fishing pole here. This is a six foot six, it's called a medium action fishing pole. And I've got a two and a half pound weight. If I put this two and a half pound weight on this medium action fishing pole, it's going to bend over. 
I can get it, the hook out of my finger. It's going to bend over. It's going to have stress on it. But I don't have any problems controlling this fishing pole with this two and a half pound weight on here. None whatsoever. Now, if I take that same two and a half pound weight, the same matter, the same food, the same observance of religious day, the same coat and tie with the preacher on Sunday, something small, and I put it on this little pole that I don't know if, if I've, I use it maybe to catch perch or something. I've got to get ready for it. This thing's going to bend over. And I have absolutely no control over it. You see how my hand is shaking trying to hold it. What Paul is illustrating, what Paul is driving home, is this is the weak in faith. That matter, that small trivial matter that you think you need to get this weaker brother in line with you, is not so small because your stronger faith doesn't bend and lose control like this one. And therein lies the problem. Oftentimes, is we don't realize the struggle that somebody else goes through in their faith. And Paul's not saying, go bring them and get them to bring, teach them to be like you. You need to understand that they are weak in faith, and that small matter can absolutely crush them. Unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, a passage in which Paul wanted to drive home the principles of unity has been used time and time again to tear the church apart. Time and time again, this passage has been used on matters that are so trivial, such as carpet color, drape color, all of these small matters and it's been used for the exact opposite intention in which Paul wanted to be used for, to drive fellowship, to drive unity. And the reason that this is particularly important is we need to recognize that there are occasions when we need to hold back from our freedoms. We have liberties and we have freedoms. And there are times that we need to hold back from those freedoms for the sake who's, uh, of someone's faith who would be damaged, sometimes irreparably. Paul gives us a very important thought to keep in mind when he says, Do not destroy those for the one whom Christ died. How could we want to ruin another's faith on something on matters that are small. Matters in which God really is indifferent. The reason this is even more important is because the kingdom of God is not about meat and drink. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You see, Paul was dealing with this problem in Rome. He dealt with it in the church at Corinth. He dealt with it in the church at Galatia. And that tells us one important fact. All these people from separate pockets of the world were having very similar problems, and we're not any different. 
Now, we have the same problem about focusing on the me and not the we. And ultimately, the we being God's kingdom. And not worrying about things and focusing on things that are trivial or things that are indifferent to God instead of seeking peace with one another. And this is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about our unity in Christ. And it has to be that's one of the most important themes of the entire letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. We are to be seeking peace and joy with one another. As he comes into kind of the conclusion of Romans chapter 14, he kind of summarizes all of this. He says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify one another. For me, destroy not the work of God. So don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Get the proper perspective in place. Don't destroy the work of God by bickering over things such as food and observance of days. He goes on to say, All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Everything's clear, but the bigger picture is how we treat one another. And you get the idea of what was going on when someone was offended or a stumbling block by someone who was eating meat, trying to deal with their faith, and you get the idea that the person was eating that meat intentionally to hurt them. And he says that it shouldn't be that way. You're destroying the work of the kingdom over meat, over personal preference, over small liberties that you have. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, who is a, or is offended, or is made, made weak. And for years I've called Romans chapter 14 the no drinking chapter. Because this is where we go when we talk about not drinking. And rightfully so. Because this is where it gets a little bit more personal, a little bit more real for us today. Living in West Texas, we don't really have a lot of problems dealing with foods and meats. We don't have a lot of problems with observance of days. But understanding stumbling when it comes to alcohol is something that we need to be very aware of. Now I'm going to suspend reality for just a moment, and I'm going to reiterate that. I'm going to suspend reality for just a moment. And I'm going to tell you, if Jason and Becca come over to my house, and Becca whips out a six-pack of beer and sits down and starts knocking back cold ones, I'm not going to think anything of it. That's a liberty we have in the Scripture. There's warnings against it. it tells us not to be drunk. I'm not going to think anything of it. That's where my faith is. But what about my three children sitting around that table? What about my 17-year-old, my 15-year-old, and my 12-year-old? All who absolutely adore this woman, who they think has great faith, and they're seeing her do this. What do you think that does to them? What do you think it causes them and the struggle and their early stages of their faith and having to deal with that? Now, reality is back to what it is. Becca doesn't drink, just so you guys know that. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe she does. I'm confident she doesn't. <laughs> That's the reality of what we're a little bit more common day application of what we're dealing with, though. The meats and the observance of days, that was a specific problem to them. Drinking alcohol is a very specific problem that we have in our culture, isn't it? It's one that we have to deal with and warn our children and the dangers of it. What can happen on the other side of that? That's something that we need to take seriously. Hast thou faith, have it to thyself before God. And if I've ever heard of one of the most out-of-context-used scriptures, it's this one highlighted in purple. Hast thou faith, have it to thyself before God. That doesn't mean that you don't need to share your faith. There's a lot of Calvinistic doctrine in this passage that gets lifted out a lot of times that God will point people in the right direction and you don't have to do anything. That's not at all what Paul's saying here. He's saying that there are things you can keep and practice to yourself. Keep it in the context of what we're talking about here. There are things that you can keep and practice to yourself. Unfortunately, we live in the United States of America where we take our liberties very seriously And we like to put those liberties on display. And this is where being a United States citizen oftentimes comes before being a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. That you can take your liberties that you have and you can set those to the side for the sake of someone else. But unfortunately, we tend to look at things and go, I have the right to do this. I'm going to do it. And Paul's saying, that shouldn't be the case. There are things that you can do and keep to yourself that are liberties that are just fine. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. So be aware of your conscience. Not only be aware of your conscience, but the conscience and the specific example that we're given today is one in which someone who is eating something who they thinks that they shouldn't be eating, and they're eating it in doubt. And their conscience is seared. They're not eating it in faith. And he says, you're not eating it in faith. Guess what? It's sin. And that should be something that we all are very acutely aware of. Is how the conscience plays in our spiritual life and how the, conscience we can, how the conscience of others we can impact simply by our own actions. None of us lives to ourselves. We don't live in a vacuum. We love, we interact, we have fellowship, and we have unity. We have to be aware of one another and what Paul is talking about here. In verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So what's the objective? As Paul turns this, what is the objective? The objective is not me. It's still about the we. And he says... For his good to edification. 
for his good to growth. Not personal desires, not liberties because I have them, but to help build those around us up. And then immediately he turns it back to Christ. He says, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Christ, the creator of this world, could have done a number of things to please himself. But instead, he took the sin, when he says reproach, he took the sins of them and put it on him. So how can we look at a brother or sister in Christ and not seek for their edification and growth? When the example we have is to imitate the selfless, selfless act of Christ. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I've used that verse in I don't know how many sermons and never looked at it contextually, <laughs> to be completely honest. And if you were to have asked me before this, I would have not thought the context of this passage had anything to do with it being the verse previous to it being about Christ and the verse after it being about God's patience. Because I've always looked at it and said, this is why you need to look at the Old Testament. That's true. Don't get me wrong. Lift it out of its context. That still holds true. But what Paul is driving home is those things were written aforetime. Yes, they were written for our learning. Yes, you need to understand the Old Testament. But he's talking about specifically the context of all that's been going on with the Old Testament law. You need to understand how all of these things work together. Because he's talking about Christ, and now he goes on, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind and one mouth, glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's back to this life that we imitate Christ, that we are servants as Christ was. We welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. Glorify God with one voice as you work for Jesus in harmony. So, these problems that had arisen, he's now driven it back to home for them to understand that you're working for the we and not the me. And everything is to be in harmony and glorifying God. And he then turns back and says, Wherefore we receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That's a bold statement, and that should be a very serious statement. Whenever he says, receive you one another, as Christ received us to the glory of God. All that, that's in that short half a sentence, there is a lot in there. What did Christ go through so that he could receive us? The pain, the suffering, the agony, being on, on this earth with the creation in which He created, allowing that creation to murder Him. All of those things just so that He could receive us and we can't get past some liberty or something small that we can receive one another? 
Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to conform the promises made unto the fathers. And that is the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written for this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. So he wrote immediately, I love the way he ties this up in chapter 15. Since chapter 3, he's been bouncing, balancing the subject of Jews and Gentiles. He kind of went away from that as he opened in chapter 12 and talking about all these personal application things that we have. But as he closes it out, he goes back to that very same subject. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, talking about the Jews. But he was also that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy is written for this cause. I will confess to thee the Gentiles and sing unto their name. And again, rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall all the Gentiles trust. So he brings it all back together, the Jews and Gentiles. Why is that important? Because he's talking about the we and not the me. He's talking about the harmony of them coming together. He's talking about that root of Jesse, the very root that he established in in chapter 11, that root being Christ, and how the beautiful tree that would come out of it would be both Jew and Gentile. Them harmonizing together to glorify God, them working together to edify and build one another up. This morning as we close... I want to ask you about your relationship with Christ. Because you're weak. Apart from Him, you're weak. In chapter 3, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to take that a further step and says, while we were yet enemies with God, He died for us. We have justification and sanctification because of Christ. Apart from Him, we are weak. I love the way Christ puts it in John chapter 15 when He's talking about the vine and the branches. He sums that all up at the end whenever He says, Without me, you can do nothing. This morning... It's very important to ask, that, ask yourself that question in your relationship with Christ. He died for you. He allowed Himself to be murdered for you, for your sins. In response, He asks you to focus on the we and not the me. Have you allowed yourself to submit to what he wants. In chapter 6, he opened there referring to their baptism, knowing that that baptism is what resurrected them to a newness of life, a cleanness of life as it related to Christ's resurrection. This was something that they had done, and it's something that we need to do as well. 
If you have not taken the opportunity to be presented in the waters of baptism, raised to a newness of life, putting away the filth of the flesh, we can help you that with that this morning. I know that sometimes we get in a pattern of focusing on me, and we tend to forget about the we. Sometimes we have real struggles in life. Sometimes our faith is really impacted, and we need help. We can help you with that by offering up prayers on your behalf. If you would find yourself in either one of these groups, we ask you to sing the song, to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.